0: Hey, Julie. Hey, Mike. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Yeah, what's our podcast called again?
0: That's up for debate. Uh, According (laughs) to the logo um, that I had my daughter build, it's that's probably how it happened. But I don't actually think that was the name we agreed on. I think what we agreed on is that's probably what happened, which is one word shorter and better.
1: That's probably what happened? That's probably what happened.
0: Yeah, right, that's better than it's probably how it happened, which is like a mouthful of words at that point.
1: Too many words.
0: Yeah, sorry, so I'm not sure what the name is, but that's where we are. My bad.
1: Well, we're such amateurs. We don't even know the name of our podcast.
0: Luckily, we have a pro along with us today. I believe we have a guest star, is that right?
1: Yes, we have an esteemed guest who has recently told a story at my show that blew everybody away. And that's not the story he's gonna tell tonight, sorry. That will never be heard again because it was not recorded.
0: <laughs> Who is this amazing guest?
1: I would like to introduce the fabulous, the wonderful JP Frary.
0: JP Frary, welcome.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, it's glad to be where I am and where you're not. I mean, it, I mean, it's nice to talk to you. That's what I mean.
0: Thank you. How's your pandemic going?
2: Um, well, I'm looking for positive things. I tried, I fed a bird a shrimp today. That was a good thing. <laughs> and he was very, uh, or I think it's a her, I'm guessing. I know nothing about egrets. They all kind of look
0: alike to me.
1: But- They look alike <laughs> to me too.
0: <laughs> then how did you decide that the that the bird is a she? Well, so I did
2: a little bit of uh, reading and apparently like size wise, the female is a little bigger and I could see the other bird- and she was bigger so I'm guessing she's she has fledged she can fly but she is coming down and begging for food at this restaurant on Harrison Street and um, and the guy is feeding her shrimp and cubed
0: steak and she really likes it. <laughs> so I am not I'm not a bird or egret expert um, but from what I've read they don't typically eat steak in the wild, um, is uh, steak something you think that the Egret should be eating? Um, I emailed a birder friend of mine who admits to
2: that. I do not admit to that. And she said, eventually she's just not gonna take scraps from you when she's able to hunt on her own. So right now you're just supplementing her diet. If she doesn't like it, she won't eat it. She won't eat chicken. He's tried feeding her chicken. She won't eat that. She really just likes shrimp. raw shrimp is her favorite thing.
1: But it's not one of those very delicate white Yeah. white egrets it is. It's one of yeah. those. Amazing. Yeah. I have never seen those bag. I've seen a lot of black-crowned night herons here in Oakland. They're everywhere.
2: And there okay. are um if you go out, well, you can't right now, but um when the movies get out at the Grand Lake Theater, yeah. If you go down the street, you'll see the black Crown night herons picking rats off the top of garbage cans, which is some like you know, not in nature thing, but it's all for the good, right?
1: Yeah, I didn't know they control rats. That's awesome! Yay, black Crown night herons.
0: There you circle, go. Circle of life. That's right. So, do you have a story for us today? I do.
2: I do. Okay. I have a, um, I have a story that relates to
0: COVID. Oh, is that so? Very, I, we haven't talked about the theme today. I. And so we should decide on what the theme is. Oh, there's a theme. Son of a bitch. All right. We'll we'll retroactively make the theme match. But um, what is the theme of your story, JP? Um,
1: Didn't he just say COVID? Well, that's not
0: the theme of my story.
2: The theme Um, of my story is stories. (laughs) That's very meta.
1: That's very meta.
2: It is definitely a meta story. What is the theme of
0: your story, Julie?
1: Bullshit. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so we're on the same page. <laughs> and mine is um travel and, and relationships and and pushing boundaries. So I think there's a, a lot of overlap there.
2: <laughs> is there any bullshit <laughs> in it?
0: Sure, there's there's always bullshit. Yeah. That's, it, you that's, know, that's if, probably what happened.
2: If you're gonna have a theme, you probably should
0: let your guest know. <laughs> Before the show? Listen, we're not really experts at this whole podcasting thing. And I'm pretty sure I can make it work in post-production. I'll, I'll edit this together seamlessly, I promise you. The theme Excellent. will flow. Excellent. Don't worry about that. Uh-huh. All right, should we do um Rochambeau to see who goes first? So three-way Rochambeau.
1: So we're doing one, two, and then show your hand.
0: Yeah, we'll do one, two, and then on three, we all show our hand. Right, right. The, with the webcam. You can't see this audience, but... But Julie will will sportscast this. And it'll be amazing.
1: All right, we all have our fists in the air, pointed at the camera. One, two, three. Oh.
0: Oh.
1: I'm a paper. I cover the rocks.
0: That is so. Does that, that mean you, did, you go
1: first? I win the Rochambeau. Yeah. So that means I get to go first with my bullshit story. Bring,
0: I want to hear your bullshit story, Julie.
1: It's it's okay. All right, fine.
0: <laughs> All right. So this is. Wait, before you start. Sorry. So the problem I found with the the podcast storytelling at a real story show, uh, which mm-hmm. live, when someone's done, they say thank you and they walk off. Right, and you can tell when they're done. In the podcast, I'll just walk clear. Like, <laughs> like the audience can't tell when you're done. Like, do you want like a secret word or something, or do you want to say thank you? Like,
1: it's over. <laughs>
0: That's a wrap this over. All right, cool. That'll be your secret phrase. That's how we'll know to say, that was an amazing story, Julie.
1: Or I'll just bow my head. Cause we can see each other. They can't see each other. I all mean. right.
0: The, all right, the audience will love
1: that. So this happened last year. I went to the Carl's Jr. on Telegraph and MacArthur to get a beyond famous star. And I hardly ever eat fast food, and I definitely don't eat hamburgers, but Carl's Jr. has a fake hamburger called the Beyond Famous Star that is amazing. It tastes exactly like a real cheeseburger with the juicy burger and the cheese and the tangy pickle and the special sauce and the crispy lettuce and the sweet bun and it just kind of slides down my throat and it's so amazing and I went to the Carl's Jr. to treat myself to this amazing Beyond Burger because it was my first day of rehab and it had not gone well and I've been a vegetarian for 38 years, so I figured this was a treat that I could allow myself to have this fake hamburger after a real day of kind of shittiness. So I had been a huge stoner for the past four years, and anybody in the story community who knows me knows that I was always telling stories about weed, In fact, one of my best stories was all about smuggling weed for my mom when she was dying of ALS and how that convinced me that weed is actually a beautiful plant and everybody should use it. So that was, you know, back in 2002. And then I forgot all about it until I moved to Oakland, the home of basically legal weed before it became legal, Oaksterdam University and all that. And I got really into growing weed. And I started first smoking it just to have really good sex. And then not only to just have sex with somebody I trusted, I started using it to have sex with people in order to trust them to have. And I made some really bad decisions. And then pretty soon after a couple of years, I was waking up in the morning and having some and having it all day and definitely all night long until I went to bed. And it was free for me. All this was free unlimited weed because I grew it in the backyard and I had an unlimited supply until it turned on me. And that's why I ended up in rehab. And the very first day you get there and they ask you your name and how what's your drug of choice? And so we all went around and said those things and how many days you've been clean. And for the new people, they asked one more question, which was what basically was the straw that broke the camel's back? What what made you end up here? And I just felt like I'm just gonna share every, I'll just, you know, spill it. And I told them how I had been having suicidal thoughts and I didn't see the point of living. And I was depressed all the time, unless I got a brief respite by smoking. I never even got high anymore. It was just to keep the depression away. And I would wake up in the middle of the night with like this bolus of anxiety in my chest. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't drink water without choking. I was coughing up black smoke. It was not making me feel any better. And it was time to quit. But I knew that I needed help. And I explain that I, my house is full of weed. I have two pounds of weed in the house. I have, I people come over all the time to smoke weed and to buy weed. And I live with a weed seller. Oh, and by the way, the weed seller is me. I am the one selling the weed. And they all look at me like, yeah, this is never going to work. Like she, she's never going to be able to, you know, do this. And the instructor is this petite older Italian lady with dyed black hair and big bulging eyes and she speaks with a lisp because she's wearing those kind of plasticky braces to straighten her teeth. And I feel at home with her and I start crying was as I'm telling people this. And then she asks if anybody has any questions for Julie. And this guy raises his hand, and he's this doughy-faced white guy with watery brown eyes, and he's got kind of, like kind of fat, pudgy, doughy face. And he says, so why are you quitting weed for eight weeks? And I was like, my voice went up like 10 octaves. And I'm like, didn't I just say that? <laughs> and and then the instructor kind of separates us verbally and says, you know, one day at a time or some other trite kind of rehab cliche. And the day goes on, but I'm like mad at this at this guy for not being supportive of me. In fact, nobody's very supportive of me. I think they probably think I'm full of shit, Walk, going around telling people how I'm selling weed and also trying to quit smoking weed. But I, I hate this guy. And it just reminds me of when I was a, in middle school and I became a vegetarian overnight. And the next day was hot dog day. And everybody teased me for not wanting to eat the hot dog. I said, I'll, I'll take the bun, but not a hot dog, please. And after that day, everybody always teased me because I, I was so... Firm about my desire not to eat meat and why you shouldn't eat meat because of the animals and da 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 da, da. and I, I it just made me think you know fuck you dude I am gonna do this you don't think I can do this well I'll show you and and his doubt actually motivated me through the whole entire program and one of the things they make you do in in the program I was in was, is go to an outside meeting twice a week, like an AA meeting. And I don't believe in God. I'm not a big God person. So I, I didn't really want to go to an AA meeting, but there was one called MA and it was a women's marijuana anonymous meeting. And I thought, I'm going to check that out for my, you know, second Mm -hmm. outside meeting of the week. And I get there and they're all very nice kind of hippie chicks with, different styles of fashion and they all seem to know each other really well and it feels like really supportive there and they go around in a circle and again they say their name and how long they've been clean and it goes something like this. Hi I'm Alyssa and I'm a stoner and I'm three days clean. I had a relapse last week or hi I'm Jennifer and I'm a pothead and this is my hundredth day clean, woohoo! And everybody applauds. Or hi, I'm a, uh, Amanda, and I'm a stoner, and this is my ninth week clean. And I'm thinking to myself, when they get to me, I can't say that I'm a stoner because I used to be a stoner. I used to be really into it. I would, I would tell everybody about how many joints I had to smoke. It and all the time, but now, now that I'm trying to give it up, why would I use that word? Why would I define myself as the thing I'm trying not to do? And I realized I'm not a stoner, I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) And I went, I never came back to that MA meeting. And I finished the eight weeks of the Kaiser rehab. And by the fifth week, I was peeing as clean as the driven snow because it takes three weeks to get out of your system. Right. I know that it's terrible mixing metaphors. But anyway, the point is, despite all of their doubt or maybe because of it. I quit smoking weed and today is my five hundred and eighty fifth day. Clean. Woo! Thank you.
0: <laughs> that is a mate. Congratulations! I don't know if your story's over because you didn't say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, the magic! The magic phrase. Uh, that's a wrap. It's over. <laughs>
0: which, which I think is also not correct, but uh, that's fine. Like I get it. Your story's over. Um, that's mate. Congratulations on both your five hundred days and your vegetarianism. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is super impressive. So do you you don't think that the that the 12 step programs have something to offer you?
1: Not me. I mean, I I could never get with the idea of somebody outside of myself like God or Ryan Gosling coming in to save me from smoking weed. You know, that's just not I'm not gay, but friend. I
2: do Ryan Gosling. <laughs> What? Sorry, sorry. That was a you're talking about something serious, and I'm saying I'd bang Ryan
0: Gosling.
1: Oh yeah, no, I would do anything that Ryan Gosling told me to do.
0: Yeah, and and, and how does he relate to twelve step programs? Is that is that a movie? Like, like,
1: no, it's like they want you to put your faith and trust in something outside yourself to save you from your addiction, and that never made any sense to me. I didn't. You just
0: literally. You just literally conjured that Ryan Gosling part out of nowhere. That's not relevant. Like, that is not a thing.
1: Well, I, I got mean, it. if you're going to put your faith in somebody outside yourself, like God or a group of drunks, they would say, or Ryan Gosling, <laughs> then, you know, you could basically say any anything, I guess. But um, no, I always had a lot of difficulty with that. And also with the whole fact that they always start off by announcing the thing that they're trying not to be and not to do. And they're like doubling down on that identity. And I know anybody listening to this who loves 12 step and it helped them will disagree with me. And that's fine. More power to you. If it helped you, it just was never anything that would help me. You know, what helps is the group. The group is what helps. I yeah. was smoking all this week cuz I was lonely and miserable and the group was a nice social outlet. They were terrible storytellers but they, <laughs> were, they were fun, people, you know, they were supportive most of them. Once they realized that I wasn't actually full of shit cuz I kept coming back every single week and I kept going to meetings and I kept my numbers kept getting higher and higher cuz I didn't smoke it, you know. And I would come home and roll joints for people and sell them and come home and bake brownies out of weed oil for people and sell it and come home and water my fucking weed plants in the backyard.
2: I grew up in Mendocino. I know I I had to quit in high school and I know (laughs) like every it's everywhere. It's fucking everywhere.
1: Yeah. And they make it seem so great. That's another reason why I think it helps to get personally, have a personal vendetta against the thing. Like the whole weed industry is such bullshit. The way they're saying it's good for everything. Yeah, it's good for making you reliant on a plant.
0: There That's you go. what it's
1: good for. <laughs> but, but JP, you had to quit in high school.
2: So uh, I got asthma really, really bad. And um, my mom, we I went to the allergist and the allergist you know, I lied. I didn't say I'm smoking a lot of dope. Um, you know, and, uh, my mom ended up taking me to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, which is outside of Ukiah. And they had a uh, acupuncture clinic that some people said it helped with asthma. And we go in and this intake guy, this monk sends my mom out of the room and he goes, uh, are you wake and bake? Is that your thing? Are you like high all the time? And I was like, "No, no, no, not, not in the morning.
1: Wait, how do he know?
2: Because <laughs> it's Mendocino County. <laughs> in the '80s, like, you know. And I admitted I was smoking a lot of dope, and he said, "Yeah, so there's a lot of resins in marijuana, very irritant to your lung. Um, if you have to do it, eat it." And uh, he goes, "If you quit smoking it, your asthma will clear up in like three days." and it cleared up in about 24 hours. It was unbelievable how I was like, oh my
1: God, I could breathe, you know? Yeah, what happened with me, I got this thing called a a spasm of the trachea. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so scary. It's like, you can't take an inhale. You can only exhale you can't take an inhale and I thought I w- I thought that was asthma because I didn't know any better but it was a spasm of the trachea and it would happen whenever I drink any water or liquid it happened in the carl's J- junior as I was drinking my diet coke on that very Ugh. first day and that's one of the scariest things in the world when you can't breathe yes and that, that all cleared up once I quit smoking
0: yeah i'm a big fan of breathing there you go <laughs>
2: I also uh, realized that I was uh, dumber. Um, <laughs> like the second I stopped smoking, I was like, whoa, I'm smarter. Like yeah. it, it was like a, literally a cloud lifted.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I went from weed is the best thing in the world. I used to have menus for all the different plants I grew in my garden and the menus were like this plant will lift you up and put you down in a better place than where you started. And I was a good weed sales lady because I could write really enticingly about all the different strains and all the different things Mm. that this sativa would do versus this hybrid. And you know what? It's all bullshit. It just gets you high. It makes you stupid. It gives you asthma. It knocks you out, whatever it does. And eventually you will not be happy without it, and then you're addicted and you're fucked if, you, if you're a daily user, if you're a daily user. And people are like, oh, no, it's the only thing that helps my anxiety.
2: Yeah. You have anxiety because you don't have dope.
1: <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> yeah. You guys are really harshing my mellow. That's all I can say. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, JP, it's you and me. You want to rochambeau for this? Mano a mano? All right, I time you ready to lead us through this? Julie, you're the sportscaster. Right. Oh, All
1: right, all right. Okay, ready? 1 2 Go!
0: I can't see your hand, JP.
1: I can't see
0: your
1: hand, JP. Uh, I I was paper. Oh, okay. You have a paper, so you got cut and now since Mike had the scissors, who that cuts up the paper Mike gets to go. Oh,
0: well said. That was amazing sports casting. Thank you, Julie. So uh, back in October, my wife and I, during the before times, before the pandemic, we took a vacation to London. And we had a great time. We did all of the touristy things there. It was pretty good. Um, But our last night, we made a dinner reservation in Chelsea, which is the posh neighborhood in London, at a fancy Indian restaurant that apparently had a doorbell. I'd never been to a restaurant with a doorbell before. I was very excited. So we we got to the neighborhood a little early. We're walking to Kill Little Time down the street, and we thought we should grab a drink. And we're looking for a pub, some neighborhood pub, to grab a drink. And there are no pubs in Chelsea. Like, if you want to get a fancy cup of tea or maybe buy a top hat, I think that would be a good neighborhood for that. But if you want to pop into a pub, no such thing. So we're about out of time for this. When we pass this one abandoned storefront, and there are about half a dozen teenagers in it, and one of them screams at us as we're walking by, Come on into our party. Now, I used to work in one of the crappiest neighborhoods in San Francisco, and I am used to people screaming crazy things at me all the time. And I am super good at ignoring them. I look straight ahead. I do not engage with the crazy. I give no indication whatsoever I will engage. So I am doing this. I am in mid ignore as we walk past the door front. When my wife says, okay, and walks on into the store. At this point, I have to do one of two things, either follow her in to the party or get a divorce, (laughs) which smacks of effort, frankly, and uh, really I think puts me further away from the fancy dinner with the doorbell. Um, But frankly, this is the sort of thing she has done before. I mean, occasionally we'll get like a crazy invitation from one of our friends that we'll make notes that I won't understand and I'll read it and I'll say, Uh, this makes no sense. No. And she'll read the exact same invitation and she'll say, this makes no sense. Yes. So of course she walked in. And so I followed her back in because I didn't want, you know, the divorce and I immediately, you know, assess the situation. And there's about half a dozen kids in there and maybe ages 18 to 20, um, There's one girl who's posing like she's a model in front of a a Trump doll and a few rotting pumpkins and someone's taking her picture as she poses. There's a couch that looks like it was dragged out from the street minutes earlier and there's like three kids sprawled across it. And there's one kid in the corner on a moped just sort of rocking back and forth in this store. And I look around, and one of the kids off the couch springs up and runs over to us, all enthusiastic, and says, hi, hi, welcome to our party. My name's Nims. Nims? I've never met a, a Nims before. And so I I shake his hand, and I realize for the first time in the whole week we've been in London, I smell something that I have not smelled since I left San Francisco, and that's pot. And uh, because it's illegal there. And I say, Nims. It's... Smells like San Francisco in here, and he looks very nervous. He's like, "Oh, uh, uh, well, I, you, uh, um, would, would you like some San Francisco?" <laughs> and my wife says, "Oh, I, that's very nice. Uh, thank you, but we're gonna have to go to dinner soon, so I, no, thank you." He says, "Oh, well, how about some champagne?" And he points to the back of the room, and I look back. There's a shelf, and there's a half dozen bottles of champagne sitting there. I'm like Nims, and I ask question, I'm gonna ask several times that evening. I said, "Nims." what is this?" He says, and he beams at me, he says, it's a party. We're going to have furniture delivered soon. It's going to be great. Like, it's a party. And then the kid at the moped sort of wheels his moped over to us and he introduces himself and he immediately launches into an invitation that we should attend a protest that's occurring the next morning in London. I think they're protesting capitalism or money or maybe the concept of numbers. I wasn't exactly sure what it was. But also the following day, there's gonna be another protest, and that was the one he was really excited about, and they were protesting the capture of Julian Assange, who he said, you know, the whole global narrative had been against him because the the CIA had been writing this, and the Antichrist, uh, Hillary Clinton had been in charge of this anti-narrative, and of course the Jews as well, who controlled 40% of the media. And at this point, as a member of the tribe, I'm like, well, I, you know, but, but a guest in this place, I, I wanna, you know, politely push back a little. I'm like, well, well, a uh, 40%, it, at least that's the minority of the, of the media. And he's like, yeah, but Jews are only 16 million people on the planet. That's 0.2% of the population controlling 40% of the media. That's an outsized influence. And now I can't, like, I've heard so much crazy at this point. I, I have to engage. I'm like, I, I'm sorry, dude. Like I, there's no way that there are only 16 million Jews. I, I have been to New York I, I have been to Israel. Like that country is literally stuffed full of Jews. There are more than 16 million Jews in the planet. He said, no, no, that's actually th- at most there are that many. And so we make a bet. I don't have much on money on me. I've got like maybe a few pounds. So we bet like five bucks. He continues to rant against the, the global conspiracy. And I'm on my phone trying to find exact population figures for the number of Jews in the planet. And I kind of cannot find anything that agrees with me. I'm seeing numbers like 14 million, 15 million. Nothing says that there are more than 16 million. And I'm left with the fact that I am losing this bet. And I do not want to pay out a bet to an anti-Semite. <laughs> but even more than that, I do not want to be the cheap Jew who will not pay out a bet. <laughs> so I cut I out my wallet and I paid the anti-Semite his $5. I'm like, Nims, what is this? And it was like, oh, oh, it's a party. The furniture will be delivered any minute now. It's going to be great. And we realize it's almost time to go to dinner. And we we say our goodbyes. We say goodbye to the art school model. And we say goodbye to the anti-Semite on the moped and to Nims and the couch people. And we go off to our, our lovely restaurant. I ring the doorbell and we have a great meal. But I have to think that Despite that amazing meal, the thing that I remember most from that whole trip was that time that we spent at that party meeting those people. That is the most memorable part of the whole trip. And I will admit this to you if you do not tell my wife. But I do think that yes, sometimes the answer is to to say yes to the crazy. Thank you. And that's, probably how it <laughs> that's probably how it happened.
1: That's probably how it happened.
0: That's probably how it happened. And that's how you end a story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you never found out what organization their party was representing?
0: No, he was just anti-everything um, except China. China was the one government that he was all in favor of. And I think the kids themselves, most of them were not pro-moped guy. Um, they just sort of endured him. But what those kids were, I think just a bunch of rich kids who I think someone's daddy set them up with uh, an abandoned storefront. That's my best theory. The Londoners I've spoken to said, oh yeah, Chelsea, that sort of thing happens. Whatever that means. My dad never gave me an abandoned storefront, I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I was wondering what they're, if they were you know of the wealthy posh Londoners, if they were in Chelsea, but then it was an abandoned storefront. So, but I guess it was a posh place because they had champagne in San Francisco.
0: It was a posh place. Um, I think maybe this was, maybe it was the one pub and that's why it was abandoned. So it went out of business. Clearly if it had been a top hat shop, it wouldn't have been abandoned, but. (laughs) I
2: always um, am very suspicious of young people that have champagne. (laughs) It seems like such a, like, even now I'm 55 years old and somebody has champagne and I'm like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) What if it's You're a New God. Year's Eve?
1: About, what are we celebrating?
2: My wife is just going.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: she is literally your wife is literally sipping on some champagne right now, I bet. <clears throat> it's possible. She
2: now she will. <laughs> but this is the saddest thing. Here is the saddest thing.
1: What's the saddest thing?
2: She has tiny bottles.
1: She has a tiny bottle of cook's champagne.
0: Single serving.
1: Oh man, you guys are making me want to be
0: Champagne is a lovely drink. It is. It is effervescent. It is light and bubbly. It's charming. It's the. It's the Lacroix of alcoholics.
2: It's <laughs> highly suspicious to put air in your water.
0: <laughs> so soda.
2: I yeah. Yeah. I, like as a kid, I would always shake it up to get the carbonation out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's just weird. Soda was like my favorite thing as a kid. Aside from my parents, blah, 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 but yeah, you know, soda.
2: Well, you do seem to have had a healthier childhood than me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mike has had sense. the healthiest of childhoods. That's why he's so well-adjusted.
0: I'm so wholesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Might you have a story for us, JP? Absolutely. So uh,
2: this is the root of why I tell stories. Uh, I mean, I've got all kinds of emotional problems, but... um. The truth is my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, had the Irish gift of gab, and he would even use a brogue to tell stories. Um, And I didn't really even think about it, but he never lived in Ireland, so the brogue was totally fucking fake. Um, And uh, he was born um, in San Francisco uh, in the Mission District in 1918. Wow. And the day he was born, his mother and father died of the Spanish flu. Oh
1: my God.
2: And so he was raised by an aunt. And in fact, his birth announcement was on the same page as their obituary in the San Francisco Chronicle, which is a thing like we're going through this COVID thing. And I like it really, it's a weird thing in my head because I think about this and go, he was alone in America um, it was likely that his mother caught it in Ellis Island or on the train coming out from the East coast to San Francisco. Cause she just got here from Ireland. She was pregnant with him on the boat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I have my whole life. He would tell stories of Ireland and of what it's like to be from County Cork. And I knew he had only visited once, but he knew all the old relatives that I never met. So I, I thought these were all true stories. And I really wanted to go to Ireland to to see the land that he talked about. Cork is in the south of Ireland, and uh, and that's where we were from. He told us we were from County Cork, and he would always say it in that brogue, you know, County Cork, and you know whatever. Um, so I went, and I went to go and look for evidence of my family in Ireland. And he had said that he had found our family name in the small Bible. Um, that's in the Sheep's Head Peninsula, which is uh, this kind of the southwest of Ireland. And these are tiny towns. Like, you know, if the name is in the Bible, you'll find it. And so I went to Ireland and went to the south of Ireland, and went to this tiny town that we mispronounced while we were while we were there. We called it Akista, but it's sort of like um, Cersei Ronan. You know, if you try to pronounce her name by reading it, you can't because Irish is like. I, I swear to God, they just make up the pronunciation. Um, the pr- proper pronunciation is "athacista," but we called it a because that's what it looked like. And, um, and everybody there just let us say it and just looked at us like, yeah, okay. But so we get to this tiny area. In fact, it has one of the oldest structures ever built by humans on earth. There's a, a stone cairn there that's 5,000 years old. And I sat on it and didn't even know it was there. That's how small it is. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the Irish, they I'm sure, built it up. And, you know, oh, yeah, it's the oldest building ever built. And you get there and it's a pile of rocks. But um, but I got to this place and I went to find this Bible in this church. And there was an old woman there. And uh, I told her what I was looking for. And she said, well, what was your great grandmother's last name? And I said, "Dorty," And she said, well, she's not from here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is my family history. We're from County Cork and and this is the church. And she goes, no, you're a northerner. You're not from the South. You're from Donegal. All the Doherty's are from Donegal. And I said, well, this was a long time ago. This was 1918 when she left here. And she goes, oh, even less likely a Doherty was from here in 1918. You're from Donegal. You're a Protestant. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Which
2: in my family I was raised Catholic and we were always told we were Irish Catholics and I could not believe this. I, my, uh, you know, my head was spinning and I really didn't have much more time to spend there. And so I went back to Dublin last day in Ireland, have to fly back to the United States feeling like my entire history was a lie in some weird way. And, and that, you know, no connection. Like I had this connection to being a Catholic from Ireland and I'm a Protestant, I'm still from Ireland, but you know, growing up, you know, the Jameson's, you know, that's the Catholic whiskey and the Bushmills is the Protestant whiskey. I was raised that way. Um, So I was walking around Dublin, had a flight the next day and I just walked around kind of feeling out of touch. Even though everybody looks like me in Ireland, and I definitely am Irish, I just felt like my family history was a lie. And I was passing by this bar, uh, it's called Terrington's, um, very old bar in Ireland. And I looked in the window for a second, and I, I thought I would go in and have a pint, and then I just, nah, I just didn't want to, I just needed to walk. And I, I kept walking, and a woman came out of the bar, and she said, you're Nick Nolte. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, No, no, ma'am, I'm not Nick Nolte. And she goes, Oh, the fuck, you're not. You're Nick Nolte. And I, I said, No, uh, I'm not Nick Nolte. And she goes, Well, then you're his fucking brother.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I'm telling you, you're Nick Nolte. And I said, Ma'am, I'm, I'm really, I'm not Nick Nolte. And she was very insistent and she grabbed my hand and she said, I want to tell people I touched Nick Nolte. <laughs> And and I'm like, no, 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 I'm I'm not Nick Nolte. I'm telling you, I'm not Nick Nolte. And she goes, oh, but you don't understand. Nick Nolte is such a big hero to the Irish. He's an Irishman who made it in America. And I'm thinking to myself, is he even Irish? I don't even know. And she goes, you have to come with me. I I just want to show people in the bar that I met Nick Nolte. And I, (laughs) I say, look, I'm not Nick Nolte. And she goes, they won't know the fucking difference. Come on with me. And she takes me into the bar, opens the door and goes, I brought Nick Nolte here and the entire bar laughs their ass off. And you realize it's just a gag. Anybody who passes by, if you can get them in the bar, you get a free drink. So they hand her her pint and she's like, you should come and sit down and have a drink with us, Nick. And like everybody laughs. They know I'm Nick Nolte, you know, it's the big fucking joke, but I sit with them at the bar and I actually tell them my story. And they go, oh, well, you know, his mother probably said she was from Cork. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, that's the last stop before America. Even for the English, back then you took a boat over and the last stop was Cork. So her passport was stamped Cork, that she was from Cork. And your grandfather probably never knew. And I said, well, he lied and said he found our family name in the Bible. And they said, well, he's Irish, you know, give him a break. (laughs) And I drank with them and I'm starting to feel a little better. And I see a woman walk by the window, dark hair, very pale complexion. And I get up and I go outside and I go, Isabella, Isabella Rossellini. (laughs) And she turns and looks me in the eye and goes, I'm fucking from here, you idiot. (laughs) And she walks off. (laughs) <laughs> so that's my Irish heritage story.
1: <laughs> Yay!
0: You do look a little bit like Nick Nolte. I mean, like there is a little something there.
2: Um, it, but it's Nick Nolte from his mugshot. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <That'd be> like- <laughs> but imagine. Go Google Nick Nolte's mugshot, and you will be seeing J.P. Frey.
0: That was there not a bad know. that was not a bad impression right there that yes that, yeah. that works. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I I found out later it is the Tarrington Bar gag. Like everybody there tries to get somebody walking by to come in the bar and you get a free drink. And that's I just funny. I love that.
0: So are you now Protestant instead of Catholic? Like did that change your whole religion? Well, you know that's later
2: on they were like, well that's only one side of the family, you know but we didn't know his father. We don't know his history very well. It's been researched a little bit and he most likely was from uh, a tiny town in the middle of Ireland. And that's just my mother's side. The truth is I found out I'm part Norwegian, which explains so much. I don't, you know, do you, I mean, do you, you identified yourself as Jewish, but you're not a practicing Jew, you don't, right? You know? So He's I not you know, I don't go to church. Um, I don't know. Identity is so strange when you start talking about ethnicity, and right. if you're. I mean, I'm Irish and Norwegian and and um, Danish, and but I'm the fact Irish. That
1: you're going Around calling yourself Irish, it it means something to you that is
2: That's like, the identity I was raised with,
1: right? I was right, raised with that. And you know, they're storytellers and drinkers and fighters.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) So it's like you take on a little of that because you've been thinking that's you this whole time, right?
2: I mean, I really, until that moment, had this idea of who I was, you know, and definitely my grandfather was the person who would tell a story at the table. Yeah. And as a kid growing up, um, my father is a quiet person when there's a crowd around. And so my grandfather was really my ideal for how you talk to a crowd and how you tell a story. I could tell four or five of his stories. I have yeah. them memorized because they're part of my soul. You know, it's funny to me to uh, that, that, origin of how you, I really think that I have most of my memories in narrative because of him
1: mm. because
2: of the way he would talk about the war. Um, Cause he had a very unusual experience in world war II, and his description of it is, you know, you're just like, Holy shit. You forget like there were other paths he, he could type. And so they yanked him out of any spot where he would shoot anybody. And they had him be a clerk for a bunch of doctors. But by the end of the war, all the doctors were dead mm. and he got sent to be a doctor, because they were like, "Whoa, well, you know all the terms." You know? oh my god. So his like description of stuff was very different. You know, no hero stuff at all. No, he said, "I never even heard a shot fired." Like, oh. I was just in a hospital somewhere, going, "Yeah, that guy needs to have his liver cut out."
1: Oh god. <laughs> you know? oh, wow. Um,
2: but I, yeah, that sense, like, like my who in your family told stories? Where did this come from? Are you the unicorn?
0: No idea. No idea. I I just remember one day in elementary school um, when I was not a popular kid. I was a nerdy kid, like in general, like, you know, I was not well liked. But to the neighbors one day, I think I said the word booger and I got a bunch of laughs. I'm like, oh, laughter makes people like me. And the word booger has power. Yeah. And so I think at that point, then for many, many years, like shock value and gross words were the thing that I used you know, to make people like me. And I think it came from there, from that one moment when the word booger got a laugh, I think was really one of the foundational moments in my life.
1: <laughs> my dad used to tell stories. He used to tell stories that were, you know, even as a kid, I wanted to hear, like he, he was a scientist. And he would come home and talk about the people in his lab and it was so interesting. And then my sister also got that and she would come home and talk about people at her work and make them just, it was just so interesting. I'd be putting on makeup in the bathroom, getting ready for a date in my twenties. And she would come home from work and start talking to my mom in the kitchen about her day. And I just would be late because I would be listening to her.
2: Oh, that's a great image.
1: Yeah. And then, And then I always thought I wanted to be a writer, but I could never think of anything more interesting than what I had actually lived. Like I didn't have a good, I actually, it was probably more because I was so insecure from, from being scarred by my writing professors and being, <laughs> that, I, that I couldn't think of anything to write, but I, I, would, I would always wrote in my journal. And to this day, I still write longhand in a bound sketchbook that I use as my journal. And like I'm looking over at my bookshelf, and there's like just probably over fifty volumes of journals dating back to 1990.
2: Did you ever um, go back to your journal and bring it to an argument? <laughs> <it> uses evidence. <laughs> Because no, that happened I, to me.
1: No, but I did think that if I ever die suddenly, I should do a will and leave like ten thousand dollars to whoever makes a a like a made-for-TV movie out of my journals.
0: <laughs> you know, here's the part I don't understand. So you're young and impressionable. Your sister comes home from her day at work and tells you these amazing stories. And what you took out of that was, oh, I should become a storyteller, not I should get a job. Like that's where (laughs) the stories came from, her job. That's the lesson you should have learned, Julie.
1: Yeah, no, I still don't have a job.
2: (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, maybe. Jobs are overrated.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. You know. That's that's correct, but still.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, work is good. Work is good. Jobs, not so much.
1: I counted up all of the storytelling shows that I've produced since I started producing true storytelling shows. And um, I've produced over 155 shows.
2: That's something to be proud of. That's a lot of shows.
1: That's a lot of shows. That's me on the mic getting other people to tell stories and telling stories in a room full of people.
0: Of JP, how many days of work have you gone to? <laughs> <laughs> I, I go seven days a week. <laughs> That's more, more more or less than 150, would you say? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you suck.
0: Yeah. I, I mean,
2: you've seen so many stories right? I feel like I've seen a million, you've seen way more than I have. And I, I had to ask myself the other day, what, what is the show that I most enjoy? Like, of of all the ones that I've seen and ones that I've been a part of. And it is the show where people are authentic, Mm
0: -hmm. where
2: there's no doubting that that person telling the story is telling a real thing that Mm -hmm. really affected them. And I started like really looking at it and it doesn't matter whether it's funny or sad, but if it is a real thing that you can see, and I found myself realizing that I I still go back to a couple of my favorite stories were stories that didn't score well, Mm -hmm. but they were real glimpses into somebody's work or their family or whatever. And you went, oh, couldn't make that up. Like that's exactly what happened and i got to see a slice of this thing and i think uh, maybe trying to win colors what you do and and i i'm trying i'm really trying to divorce myself from that and i i'm obsessed with turning one of these things into art like i am obsessed with it now how is it not art they're not the, the next level of this where it becomes a story is it has to have It has to do more than just relay what happened. There has to be more.
1: Um, JP, you've definitely done that in some of your stories. Well, I I
2: appreciate that.
1: Stories Uh, that you've told that have uh, transcended just the narrative anecdote and have touched me emotionally in unexpected ways.
2: Well, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate you saying that. I feel like... Like it's, like there is a, a level where, like I want to reach that thing where it, it has the emotional and it also has the intellectual and, and it could be funny, it could be light, it doesn't have to be heavy, but I, I'm just, I started watching ones that people really like and, and I realized, nope, I started thinking about them and how do I structure my thing like them and that's a mistake.
1: You don't want to, yeah, copying someone else's structure, yeah,
2: yeah. But, um,
1: I'm a big fan of copying things that work just to have a scaffolding for my own creativity, and then I feel like I can stand, then I take off from there.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But, yeah,
2: the story I told at your show last week, Mm. I got a lot of emails, which I knew was gonna happen, and that really. but a couple people got the image that I put in of two boys throwing rocks in the deep pool, trying to scare out the big fish. That was the metaphor for the whole thing. The big fish is coming out and we're going to get it out by poking it. And, wow. and uh, like I was like, oh, that! I was so excited that somebody got that. Nice. You know? And I feel that way. There have been a couple of times where um, I told a moth story about um, a canoe trip in flood stage. And the whole thing was a metaphor for how my son was having to navigate life. Hmm. Something wild and unpredictable that he couldn't control, having two parents split up. And, And he listened to it. And I was so jacked when he got it, when he was like, okay, it's a metaphor for how as a child i have two parents and i have to face the world and stuff's going to come at me and i have to react you know and i just i like that's the thing i'm i want to have happen and you run that thing where if it's too heavy-handed people are like nah, heavy handed you know but i like it when there is an image in a story i like it when there's a thing that Mm -hmm. you connect to the rest Mm -hmm. Um, i don't know
0: i'm obsessed with it and it is depressing me sometimes. And I always learn something from you to, to be like, I, this is, it's nice to hear how you craft something and how you like what you're looking to do. This is really, yeah, you know, I can learn from symbolism
1: this. using a visual symbol to carry yeah. as part of the through line. Right.
2: Um, you know, this Mike, is- when, when you, when we did our grand slam, when you got your first laugh, I saw your body change. I saw you like, oh, yes, I got it. They're laughing, you know? And until you get that first feedback, you don't know, are you talking in the dark, you know? And there especially, I couldn't see anybody.
0: Those lights were so bright. Which is what makes this podcast so terrible. I literally can't see any (laughs) member of the audience. They're all invisible to me.
1: On that that note, note, that's a wrap. It's over.
0: Thank you so much, JP. Thank you, Mike, for putting this
1: together and doing the heavy lifting of the editing.
0: That's probably probably what happened. happened. That's
1: probably probably what will happen. probably
0: what happened, yeah.
1: After we wrap and it's over.
0: If you keep talking, there's no good spot for me to end it. Like, I need a pause where I can end it. Like, just nobody talk for like one minute and then I can end this.